This is Chronic Victory Podcast number 42 with me, David Montez, where I say stay in the fight because that is the mission. I have a guest today who is a motivator. He was a soldier. He is a barrel-chested freedom fighter from the Midwest. And I actually met him on accident back in 2009 before I started my career in law enforcement when I was doing a ride-along as part of my schooling with a local police department. And the guy I was supposed to be with was tied up on calls. So then this poor bastard got stuck with me for a whole night. And it was a pretty cool night, like it was yesterday. And it's already been, geez, what is that, 11 years or so? He is Brandon Langle. How's it going, Brandon? Hey, guys. How are you doing? It's a nice introduction. I should have you tell that to my wife. She'd be a little more happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see what I can do. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for being on here, man. I, I appreciate you spending the afternoon with me and killing some time on some days off. And I know things are going crazy right now in the world of policing and, and you're a police officer right now, actually promoted to sergeant, which seems recent to me, but for you, it's probably just been a couple of years already. Even I, I'm just losing track of time, but it goes by quick. Yeah. And, and the reason I have you here, everything that I feel law enforcement and especially our heroes are the people that have been in the military have a, pretty good perspective on life and all that translates everything you learn or experience in both of those roles especially translates to daily life and as life being the third topic of what this podcast is all about i figured it it would be a good opportunity to have you on here and and listen so and you have a pretty awesome story and um man you're doing a lot of cool things with your life and you've been motivating me since i met you really i got into running more and and you were the first guy when we were doing that ride along you were the first one that you didn't even really know me and only after i got hired it with the police department did i realize like some some of the coppers find ride alongs to be annoying they just want to be by themselves on shift or whatever but you were the first dude that didn't tell me if you told me when and you were showing me like your equipment kind of every every little last detail down to the earpiece to the the way you like to patrol and the reasons for what you're doing on patrol and it was just awesome it was a first you're the first guy to tell me when you do this when you do that it wasn't if and there was like no question like you didn't even ask me so I, I thought that was pretty cool and that always stuck with me yeah so thanks for that again um, yeah no problem like that was a life-changing experience and maybe not to you it was just another shift but that was a big yeah. uh like if I didn't do that, I, I I would not have had, I probably wouldn't have gotten hired, wouldn't have had a leg up on the opportunities that came my way. But your history yeah. is, uh, and your family's service really is really important to who you are now. And yeah. I think for the listeners, you want to just, can you just give us a run through of like your growing up and, and your brothers and going into the military and how that all came to, you know, we can just go from there. Yeah. Well, I'm one of five boys. My dad uh, was a bit of a Johnny Appleseed. Love the guy. Um, So I have three half brothers and one full brother. My full brother is the one who I spent my whole life with. Uh, My dad around age five found out, well, we found out that he is shacking up with another lady on the ship and showed up on the doorstep one day when I was about five. And I had another one-year-old brother that none of us knew about. And that's, I'm sure they told me, but that's kind of how I remember 
um, them getting separated is that, you know, my dad was always off. He was in the Navy. And so he was always off. And then when he would come back, I would be excited. And who's this woman, this child. And so they got a divorce around five. And that kind of really ended the stable portion of my childhood. Uh, my mom, she's a good woman. She's strict. Um, I kind of look back now and maybe have a little better, a little softer opinion of her than I did or of the situation than I did when I, when I was probably when I heard my own kids, you know, but my brother and I, we grew up, I started a life off in Portsmouth, Virginia. It's a naval base for all you squids out there. You know exactly where that's at. <clears throat> and I grew up with mostly male, um, every male I knew um, served in the military or had served in the military or was about to serve in the military. Every male in my family that has been able to physically serve has served for as long as I am aware of. So that was kind of my earliest years. We, we moved around quite a bit. My mom has, I think she has some issues with roots. She likes to bounce around a lot. So we actually ended up, um, but by the time it was all said and done, moving 16 times before I graduated. That's Damn. Two other countries, seven other states, and just a thousand. I mean, it, it seemed like a thousand places. I actually felt lucky when I was younger. So one of the things that I struggled with when I was younger was uh, I'm dyslexic. You know, I had some really hard uh, reading troubles. And it's real. you know, I'm 37 now. So a long time ago, it feels like they didn't have real good programs for dyslexic students. So they, they put me in with all the kids who had uh, special needs. Which at the time I felt, you know, I was really mad about, you know, I was in there with kids who had their own individual struggles in life. And I felt like I wasn't there, but it actually taught me, you know, that's the kind of the, the first step in, in my outlook on life. And you'll, I'll tell you once we get towards the end here a little bit more, but it's very much how you look at your situation, whatever it might be. And you can either be the victim or the victor in, in your story. And at the time I felt like I was a victim and it was kind of, you know, my, my mom ruled with an iron hand, which meant beatings. You know, when I was in school and I was put in the classroom with them, I was called stupid and, you know, retarded and made fun of. So from little on, I kind of, I didn't have this mature kind of outlook on it like I did. So I kind of solved things with violence. Um, I was mad, angry. I was mad that I was mad at the kids who had dads. I was mad at uh, the kids who, you know, didn't get beat with an extension cord. I was I was mad at this. I was kind of mad at the world. And I took it out on these kids who would, who would pick and bully on me and, you know, moving around. Part of it was, you know, you get kicked out of a school and my mom changed and lost her job. So we would move. And that's kind of part of it too. It's like, we, we moved around a lot and we weren't able to be stable. And then it just kind of increased my anger with the situation. My mom was at home a lot. She would have her, her issues and go off for a couple of days at a time and then come back. And which then forced me to, be more responsible with my brother. And over time, we really learned one to stick together. And two, that when you live in the projects or, you know, uh, trailer parks or government housing, a lot of times violence ends up being the, you know, the ruler. If you, if you don't want to get your ass kicked constantly, you have to learn to fight a little bit and stick together. And uh, so those things combined kind of didn't make me a real good student. I struggled in school. I failed kindergarten because they didn't know I was dyslexic. And so by the time I got into second grade, I was a little bit, I'm sorry, yeah, by the time I finished my second year in kindergarten, I was a little bigger than the other kids, which kind of helped out, kept me from getting uh, messed with too much. But I was really behind in reading, very, very, very far behind. And uh, it's interesting uh, looking back now, um, it became this like, this secret not being able to read and that you just did everything you could to hide it. Um, yeah. 
you know, so I, I was forced into reading programs and read classes and stuff like that, but I, I would be embarrassed. I would skip them and I wouldn't go, which just seemed like looking back, good Lord, if I would just put a little more work in there to get to save me a, a lifetime of trouble. But I was dumb and scared and, and terrified of being weak. And at the time, you know, not being able to read, I, I wasn't really able to f- truly read until about eighth or ninth grade. And it was a little too far, too late, too gone kind of thing by then. And, and reading is probably a stretch for what was actually happening. But I was able to kind of um, fake my way through. And you, those of you who, who struggle with reading will kind of know what I'm talking about. It's easy to, you know, they, they call your name out and you have to go to the bathroom and you hide out in the bathroom for 10 minutes so you don't have to get caught reading. And so that kind of went on and um, ended up getting suspended a lot from school for people picking on me and then fighting and I'll be honest with you, I was, I was, I was kind of a little asshole. I didn't really bully anybody. I was just, I was just kind of a dick. And, uh, you know, and I look back now and I'm like, ah, oh, you're such an asshole. And, but when, you know, you don't have any support at home, you're taking care of your brother and, um, and your, any, what's that? And your kid, you don't really yeah, have perspective kid. of what's going on yet. Really? And there was no, there was no steady man to show me how to appropriately, you know, respond to this, what was happening to me in the world. The, the men I had in my life were these endless flow of men that would either beat my mom or, you know, sexually assault her. And we had to wake up to her shooting her 357 in the house at him, you know, and that, wow. you know, that was about nine where I woke up to my mom screaming and chasing a guy out of the house with a 357 shooting at his car. And then now you go to school, you know, <laughs> <It's> like, <we're- laughs> yeah, intense. Jeez. You're in school. You're sometimes you're hungry and you're sitting there and, you know, I, it was weird though, man, it's, it's, it's weird to think back because it kind of makes it, I, I felt like we were a team. And so I, I didn't feel I, when I messed up, I was like, Oh, I messed up. And you know, I guess getting beat with an extension quarter or you're having your teeth knocked out. Like that was, that was part of the deal. And in my neighborhoods where I lived, that was common practice. Like you messed up, like it was nothing to see your, your, your friend with a black eye from his mom or, you know, beaten with a whatever. Mm-hmm. and flip-flops were the tools of trade mostly but so it was really nothing to like so like it's it's weird looking back and having my own kids and going uh, you know but then it was it was very normal but you go to class and you might be hungry you're distracted you didn't sleep because the cops were at your house till 3 a.m and now on top of that you're dyslexic you can't read and you're uh, terrified that anybody's actually going to find out so what do you do you withdraw from anything hard and you kind of recluse you kind of section yourself off to these friends that aren't doing well and before long I was nine turned to 15 and five schools later and I'm in southern Illinois hanging out with a really bad crowd who are doing criminal activities and I was not exactly being the greatest big brother um life's weird how it works out so I think there's a couple points in everybody's life where you're given opportunities whether you see them or not and I was probably ninth. No, I was ninth grade. And my mom had just met this guy and he was moving up to Wisconsin to get this corny uh, canning job for a corn factory. So I'm not really sure what he did there, but he was like a, a higher up in the canning industry and wanted to move to Wisconsin. And so we ended up moving to Wisconsin, which was probably the 15th move. Of, no, 14th. It was the 14th move. And so I ended up in this little farming town in the middle of Wisconsin, Wisconsin. <laughs> And uh, I can remember coming up here in the the first time, like I never really smelled cow poop and just being in the city and, and uh, yeah, I would, 
it was around Cambria, Friesland, which is this really tiny, small town. And you could just be in the middle of town and you smoke cow poop. And I was like, I had never really experienced that. And it was way calmer, man. It was, it's so chill here. People are really nice. And so my over-aggressive attitude and didn't fly with anybody. Um, I was left alone for a while and I, I made some friends early on, but um, this is the point where I met my now wife. When I was about 15, I met Kristen. And uh, I can honestly say that, you know, there, this is the defining moment and maybe a key point in, in, in how I ended up breaking with the cycle and not being a felon, like one of my 30 cousins or, you know, graduating college. It was really, it started here. It was a pivoting point for me. So I met Kristen and we were both 15 at the time. I'm like six months older than her or something. But so I moved up in June of that year and um, right at the end of the school year. I met Kristen at the beginning of school. I can still remember the first day I saw her. And so we started, you know, flirting and whatnot. And by December of that year, I uh, asked her out. And December 9th, 1998, I began the courtship, if you will, of my wife. <laughs> and so she uh, she dealt with little to no bullshit, and which was exactly what I needed. Any shenanigans I was up to with my little dirtball friends, she was not having any part of it. She expected me, you know, it's weird because... I wanted to impress her. So I wanted, one, I wanted to be around her, which forced me to be in school. It's hard to get suspended and expelled. And then you can't see her, you know? And so she, whether she realizes it or not, kind of was a, a turning point for me. And so we started dating then. And then uh, life being the way it is around April that year, my mom got tired of that boyfriend and decided that we were moving to Michigan halfway through the school year. So we packed up our shit and moved over to Benton, Michigan, which is just a, not, not a great place. <laughs> it's not a great place. I mean, there's great people, of course. And so we kind of, um, there's always opportunities to learn and kind of started working at a KFC in high school there and finished trying to finish my schooling and um, dating Kristen long distance. And uh, we didn't really have a phone in my house. So I would have to pedal my dumb ass two miles to the grocery store. And so I, I was pretty much working out. This is before cell phones were, I mean, yeah, they existed, but nobody really had them. Yeah. MCI, the five seconds, five cents a minute ruled the land. <laughs> Phone cards and pedaling. And I would, you know, we kind of did that for about eight, six months. And then um, all that moving around kind of helped. I was able to have enough credits in high school to graduate earlier from Cambria Friesland. Shocking, I know. But it, wow. it wasn't smart. It was just the math worked out for me once. So I convinced my mom and we convinced her parents to let me. Uh, move in over there and finish a half a year of school. And so um, did that. And then uh, at 17 years old, I joined the army. So I graduated high school technically in January of 2001 and went to basic in February and graduated basic three days before our graduation for high school. So it's kind of cool getting to walk down um, your high school graduation and like three days earlier being, you know, graduating from boot camp and AIT Nice. Yeah, it was. It felt really good, and it was actually one of the first real senses of sense of accomplishment in my life. I wasn't as hard as I thought I was when I went to basic. You know, it's damn teenagers where they they think they have the answers to everything, and I, boy, I thought I did. I worked out, worked out hard, had a six pack. I could run a six minute mile and do a hundred push ups. I went to basic, and they didn't give a shit. That's like that's like any uh, basic training buds for seals. Like the biggest, hardest guys, you see these guys wash out sometimes. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to buds are one of those those programs that they let you walk away. 
And I was, I'm really grateful that the army's basic training doesn't let you walk away because I would have walked away. I was soft, was so soft. And I, you know, that would have been, that would have been a real failure in my end. But nope, they didn't let me. So are you the reason your brothers joined too, like later? Cause you're, I think so. Um, my, my younger brother for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we got, I actually went for, I was in the reserves at this time. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I'm going through reserves. We graduate high school, all that jazz happens. And then, you know, nine 11 rolls around. I'm in living in her mom's, their mom's attic. And, uh, her mom wakes me up screaming, you're going to war. You're going to war. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I came downstairs to watch, you know, the second tower hit and it fall. And I was like, Oh shit, we yeah. are going to war. You know, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm one of the few people I know that signed up pre nine 11 and then, went through and so my my little reserve unit out of dodgeville was called up and we went out there and i don't know what we were doing i think it was so early and everything was so scary everybody was so scared that i think they thought we were being overrun but so we went out there and i got i use this term loosely deployed to my little reserve unit for two weeks at the time i um after towards the end of the two weeks once we realized that you know al-qaeda wasn't going to storm you know dodgeville that uh, my, my commander was like <clears throat> uh proposed an interesting proposal, I guess, to everybody. He's like, I will sign off and you guys can all end your contract as a reserve unit if you go active duty. They need active duty like now. And so I called my then girlfriend and Kristen and I was like, I really want to go active duty. She's like, let's do it. Well, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I'm, yeah, I'm graduated high school, but I can barely read. I, I <clears throat> went to uh, try to get in and I did so poorly on their entrance exam that I had, they were, I would have to basically do a, a, a starter year to even start my college classes if that makes sense i was so far i was like well that's that's not really an option at the time so i was like well yeah let's do this active duty thing it took a little bit but uh early in 2002 i went down to fort hood texas and i was a part of the first cavalry division first cav division eighth engineers alpha company which interestingly enough alpha company doesn't even exist anymore no real good reason i think the army just shuffles shit around once all it and that's also interesting too, because it's like I had been in the reserves for a couple of years at this point, and really had an idea what I thought was an idea of how the army was being run. And I went to active duty and was like, "You guys don't cut out at one for beer, like <laughs> they don't." So yeah, we went. I went down there, and as a combat engineer, you train a lot, train hard and dirty, and it was rough and sweaty and nasty and so we did that and constantly gone the, the three years i spent active duty i only spent about 11 months total with my wife uh just you're gone all the time mm-hmm. especially then we didn't know what was going on with iraq you know we knew we were going to be deployed but no really nobody knew what was we we're being deployed to and so we had all these trainings to try to help us because uh, if you ever heard before the army is always fighting the last war so when i got in it was very much you know vietnam style tactics and um, desert storm tactics a little bit and that was what we were taught and uh, it really wasn't like that at all and so they kind of had to learn on the fly a little bit and in 2004 I got my orders my company did for where we were being um, deployed to Baghdad Iraq and uh, I can remember we had this debriefing this briefing was like telling us where we were going and it was a kind of a secret deal and like had like a tent and you weren't allowed to talk about it and at that I mean I'm free now but to talk about it but then we couldn't talk about it they bring us in and they're like you're gonna be in this triangle i think they call it the triangle of death or something it's menacing and uh, you're gonna be outside of the green zone 2.4 miles and you're gonna have Haifa street and tilial square and, uh, and route irish and the um 
fourth ID, I think is what was there at the time. They're getting hammered. You're having a 75% casualty ratio, which is, you know, not killed, but injured, injured and or killed. 75% of the people at the time were being injured and or killed. They were telling, that's what they, that's what they told us at the time. I don't have any idea if it was actually true or not, but I left there and came home and told the wife, yeah, we're being deployed. And I kind of downplayed it to her. You know, I didn't want to tell her that we're going into a really hot area, but that was the first time anxiety really set in on me. And it was, it was, it was weird. Uh, we had the briefing and then the next day I woke up, I wasn't feeling great. And we went to, did some PT, you know, physical training, the, the, the army workouts and we had to form back up at nine and I could feel, I felt like I was having a heart attack. And I, it was weird. Cause I, <laughs> If you were to ask me, like, I seriously thought I was having a heart attack, um, went to the doctors only to be told that I was having a panic attack. And uh, I know how that goes. Yeah, it's it's weird. If you you know, it's kind of like getting the breath knocked out of you for the first time. You think you're going to die. But, it, it, you know, it had affected me. I had, I had really thought about for the first time in my life, what would it be like to be killed in the line of duty? And we had a friend um, who was with the, one of the divisions that was deployed. And. Um, he, uh, he had been killed in combat and we, we, we went to his funeral and his wife and she was talking about how he not the, the knock on the door. And I, I was just like on repeat in my head and just thinking about like, you know, I'm 22, I think at the time, like you, you know, you could lose a leg, you'd be paralyzed. Like, and I, it wasn't like I, I was scared. It was, but I was at the same time. And it was like subconscious. I wasn't acknowledging my fears or now I understand but back then I didn't, I was like trying to bury it and try to do the, the quote unquote manly thing. And like, Oh, shove that aside. You're a tough guy. You don't need that. Right. And, uh, um, one of the things I tell my officers now is that, um, um, I call it the dark folder. So the dark folder for me and my, my guys and gals, we call it a dark folder. It's like, you put your stressors in there. You put the, the death, the mayhem, the terribleness of society, your struggles, your all that you put in this dark folder and you set it aside. Well, at some point, the damn drawer can't be held shut anymore and it busts open. And so what happens, what happens when it busts open? Well, you're sitting at roll call or roll call. You're sitting at formation and you fall out and you're laying on the ground, grasping your chest, looking like an enormous pussy. That's what I felt. I know, I know that's not what it is, but I felt that I'm like, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. Only to be told, uh, you know, by the not too sensitive army doctor in 2002, uh, yeah. Or 2003, I should say. Yeah. Just suck it up is, is the, what I was told, you know, you need to suck it up. You're going to combat you, you know, you're not getting out of it. And, and I didn't want to get out of it. I, I didn't want to let my people down and I didn't, I didn't want to have a panic attack. I didn't want to feel like that. Yeah. And they, you know, so the lesson there was, you know, yeah, you need to shove that dark packet a whole lot deeper. And that would ultimately come back to bite me in the ass later on. Um, Cause that, that was how I was told. That's how, you know, that's, we're tough guys. We're men. You're not, you're not supposed to acknowledge your fears. You're not supposed to much less break down and talk to your boys about it. Yep. And then um, your reputation yeah. just gets shattered too. Yeah. yeah. Now, oh, now you're the quote unquote pussy or whatever, you know, I, I, and you know, what's funny. I doubt, man, I, I have a really good friend. His name's Dan and he deployed with me. We're still best friends this day. He actually, he just texted me now. Um, that's why I'm not answering him. And, uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, he, he really wouldn't have looked down on me if I would have pulled him aside and be like, I'm struggling, brother. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared to leave Kristen a widow. I'm scared of being paralyzed. Like, what's going to happen to my brother? Like, uh, will it hurt? You know, like, I just, I, and, but I didn't. I didn't say any of those things. I swallowed them, and I shoved it in that dark folder. And at 9 a.m., whatever day that was, it came bursting open. And uh, I took some, I think they gave me some Valium or 
some damn thing and to shut the drawer put a put a few staples on that drawer and then keep, you know keep on <laughs> carrying on and then uh you know uh six months later the c-130 doors open it's 110 degrees smells like burning trash and i uh i knew oh, my ass was gonna sling then and then so you're there and it's real yeah. Yeah, it's 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 real. It's hot. It's dirty. Um, at least the places we were at. And um, so we spent about two weeks in Kuwait. You kind of getting your equipment, and we didn't even have body armor at the time. Not we didn't have plates, so you had like the soft body armor, no plates. So we were waiting for this like supply from somebody, and we finally get our plates. And now we're cruising on over to Baghdad. It's a it's I don't know what the the miles are, but it takes about three days from Kuwait to Baghdad, or maybe it was five. Wow. three to five days in a convoy so we're going over there you know it's just mad it's, it's beautiful and plain at the same time or as far as you can see there's sand and dirt and rocks and hills and then you're on this little road and you just come to a little hut and 20 damn kids will come running out of the hut coming over all pumped to see you you know we're throwing skittles to them and talking to you know yeah and uh so it was kind of interesting to see you know just middle of nowhere a hut and a, a damn direct tv satellite sticking off the side of it and like <laughs> just wow. a culture shock bro like yeah it, you know it's just weird you get used to just being blazing hot all the time and you, you can never drink enough water and you're cruising across the desert and um you know the kind of the cultural shock was interesting we, we had a trailer below a tire and we had to leave it unpack it and then come back the next day once we got to like a, a station point and so we went back to get it and there's this little drag marks for the trailer off to this hut and then there's our trailer so we go over there and make contact with this uh, iraqi citizen he was very cool. Um, and he was, you know, he was wanting to barter for the trailer. And uh, we're like, no, we need the trailer. we got the tire, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, 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 no. And he brings out, I'm assuming I have a 12 to 13 year old daughter and was trying to bargain with us with his daughter. And I was like, just my mind was blown. Like I thought it was just appalling. And, and you know, wow. I still think he was trying to treat us as a 12 year old daughter for this trailer. And I was like, well, I am really not in America anymore. Like this is, this is fucked up. And he wasn't like, he was offended. We wouldn't barter with him or like, no, we gave him some water and took our trailer and moved on. But, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's different, man. It's way different and good or bad. I, that's up for, you know, people to decide it. I kind of make my own opinion, but it's different for sure. It's different. So, so what, so you're there for some time and then your brothers are there also, yeah. but different places. Oh, yeah. You guys are all there at the same time. Frame. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for my, so my older brother, Matt, um, that's another kind of interesting story. I found out when I was nine years old that I had a 13 year old brother and uh, my dad had had relations with a young lady when he, they were both 16 and uh, she got pregnant. And they, the story as I know it, they shipped her off. Nobody knew that Matt was born. Matt turns 13, contacts my dad. I meet him. So yeah, I have an older brother, Matt <laughs> at this time. And he uh, was worth, I think he was with the 101st airborne division at the time. And he was in Baghdad or I, I'm actually, I don't know where they're at. They're, he was in 101st at some point, but he was also in another unit. So I'm terrible. I can't remember. But he was over there from 2003 to 2004. I was there 2004 to 2005. My brother, Jason, my full brother, was there from 2005 to 2006. And then Matt had redeployed somewhere in the middle of 2006 and was there. So yeah, there's kind of this like, my dad had a kid in Iraq for, I think, three or four years. I, it, the months sometimes didn't quite line up, but uh, yeah, so my brother was over there and I didn't know where he was at or what he was doing, but yeah, so yeah, I had a brother over at the time. 
there's so many there were so many army guys i was didn't even think about them at the time you know yeah um but yeah i mean my older brother speaking of that so he was like in corrections or he was a part-time cop in new orleans i think and something happened with him and his wife and he called me one day and he's like hey i need to get out of here what do you think about the army and i'm like that's ah, not great but it pays the bills and so he had actually joined the army and just happened to be deployed before me just because his unit was up. But yeah, so he, I don't think he joined the army initially because of me, but I certainly recommended it to a certain degree. I mean, I was honest with him. I didn't, I didn't uh, church it up or anything for him, but he made his own decisions, but yeah, he did. He joined the army and he was there and I was coming in to switch out with them. Basically we get to Baghdad and probably March into March, beginning of April. And, um, we stay at this entry base and I can't remember if it was green zone. The green zone was like the big one. Yeah, we stayed somewhere and before we moved to our final base. So our, our FOB, our Ford operating, Ford operating base was FOB Independence. And we changed it to Headhunter because that was the, that was our logo or that was our saying, but then they made a switch it back to Independence because it was too aggressive, they said. So, but it's I like Headhunter. Uh, yeah, it did. And I got a coin from Headhunter. I got some, but you know, Paula, you know, 2002, there were still politics. Yeah, nothing like we have politics today, I guess, but they still had their political agendas and trying to make it sound PC and PC culture and all that. Yeah, so, yeah, so we switched it and I mean, it literally didn't make a difference to us. I mean, what, it's, a, it's a name. So, and we had no power. So we switched it. So we're at this base and it's the final night. We, we go to move to our, our base and we're moving under the cover of darkness. And as we're moving, people were taking pot shots at our vehicles when we were coming. And so you couldn't really shoot back because you can't see where it's coming from. But it was kind of like my first taste of like, oh shit, somebody like, they're not playing around. They actually want to kill us. And we, we get into our base, FOB Headhunter, if you want. I'm sorry, Independence, I guess. And um, the old unit was still there. So we couldn't move into the covered barracks. They had like a, you know, fortified barracks. So we had to sleep in tents. Well, the insurgents knew that we were doubled up there and started a very aggressive mortar attack against us. Uh, for everybody, like a mortar is, and it's an explosive. They drop into a tube. It shoots over, and it makes like the whistling sound. Like, it don't quite make that noise, but if you don't know anything about the army, you will certainly probably understand what I'm talking about. So they have these millimeter, they have these mortars, and they range wildly from a 60 millimeter mortar, which is fairly small, to like uh, 200 something millimeter, like just these huge shells. I, I'm, I'm not a mortar man, so some mortar guys are yeah. losing his mind right now, but. Just these large, they have a variety of mortars. And so we're hiding under these tents with jersey barriers on left or right of us. And there's 60 of us or more and we're shoved in there and we're like trying to sleep and they are just hammering us with these heavy, heavy mortars and smaller mortars. And it would only taken one. It would only taken one and we'd have been just, just fucked. But they were landing all around us. And I can remember for the first time in my life understanding what fear was. We talk about fear. You, know, you ride roller coasters, you go skydiving, you uh, go through a haunted house, and you, you think you know what it is to be afraid. And, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, until somebody's tried to snuff you out, or you can imagine getting blown up, or and it's happening. It's not a theory. It's not training. They are trying actively to kill you with mortars. Yeah. And so they're landing really close, really far away, all are kind of raining down all around, and it just goes on all night. Heavy, heavy explosions where you can feel it in your chest. And when they explode, you can feel the shit raining down on you afterwards. And you can feel the earth shake and feel your, your soul shake. And there's this feeling of, there, there's a saying, uh, and it's, you know, 
your ass tuck, pu- tuckers up or puckers up tighter than a frog's butthole kind of thing. And it's true, man. I could feel my asshole up in my chest. <laughs> it's, it's weird to say it. I, like, I hope I'm there, like, you know, discussing your fans, but there's this fear, man. And it goes, this primal, primal fear that just shakes your soul and your, your butthole feels like it's in your chest and you, you can't get small enough. There's no crivy hole to dig into and you don't want to hide under your buddies. Like you're, you're trying to protect each other. And it's just this weird onslaught. And it just all night. And all you guys have is Jersey barriers, Jersey barriers and bulletproof vests and our little helmets. And, uh, damn all goddamn night, man. Boom, boom, boom. Just going and like, um, well, luckily for us, those cocksuckers were terrible shots, and they just blew up our shitters and our and our shower bays, which might have been the intention because that was that was all equally a pain in the ass. But so the next day we get, you know, they move um, the other soldiers out. We move in. We're getting ready, and we're getting our. Oh, we're, I'm sorry. We did like a two week debrief where they left some soldiers to ride along with us, and we they're kind of showing us. And the basic missions for us was we had two routes a day, two areas of patrolling. So it was very similar to policing in the aspect of patrolling alone. But you would go into these two areas. We had a shitty area and a nice area. You go into the nice area and the shitty area. You meet with contacts. You ask them, like, how is it going? Like, um, is there something that we can do for you? Or the insurgents moving in? Now, the nice area, be honest with you, like, there are some nice places in Baghdad. It used to be the cultural uh, learning, lots of colleges there and, so our nice place, and I don't remember where it was at now, in, in Baghdad, but it was in Baghdad. It's really nice. It's shopping centers. So you can see a little bit of Western culture slipping in. And it uh, wasn't too bad. We got lots of dirty looks and um, lots of waves, though. And so there was this kind of mix. <clears throat> now, the shitty area, the shitty area was extremely crappy. They had running sewer in the streets. And, and our rules of engagement were anybody wearing green and black and, and or carrying a green and black flag with a rifle or RPG shoot on site and at the time um, we didn't have armored up vehicles we had unarmored humvees and so they're like we're rolling around with like canvas doors and sandbags on the floor just riding dirty man i got a couple pictures yeah and it it was interesting you're driving around and they don't even even bother with the canvas door because they just took that shit off so you could hop out of something started popping it's just a miracle that none of us were killed before we got armored humvees but yeah, we'd roll around, you know, little little skirmishes here and there, and just it, it wasn't like constant fighting like the the TVs portrays. It's like two weeks of your normal patrol, nothing, and then one day you get into a skirmish, then nothing for two weeks. It's, but there's just always this lingering fear of like just like, like super high anxiety and tension yeah. all the time. And they're not playing fair, man. Like they're hiding with women and kids. I went under an overpass one time, and I was gunning at the time. And we went under overpass, and I thought somebody shot me in the shoulder because I felt an impact. I didn't hear anything, but I felt a pop, like I felt it in my shoulder. And I thought for sure, I'm like, oh, about to meet Jesus. And I, I looked down, and there's a triple hook sticking out of my vest. These fucking clowns, man, they were hanging triple. Uh, like fishing it? hooks? Yeah. The, the, treble the, hooks? Treble hooks. Thank you. I'm not a fisherman. So. They're hanging treble hooks from the bridges at, at face level to catch oh. you in the face. And, uh, I'm like, that was more scary. I don't know. It was more scary. It was just as scary as a, a, a IED. And I'm like, holy fuck, man. They're so now it's like they have all, they started crafting all these really intricate like blocks, like what? Cause they were paying wires at throat level. I don't know if anybody actually got caught by one, but uh, they were, they, so they 
trying to help us. We had these shields on the front of our gun. They're called chicken shields, like bulletproof shields. Yeah. And it's just on the front. And like, so you kind of duck down a little bit under our overpass. So it flicks off. Um, I, I never had it happen again, but it was enough. Imagine getting caught in the throat with a trouble hook going 50, you know, that would, uh, that would be bad. I can remember. So the first time, um, I was actually engaged personally. Um, and we're, we're doing, we found a bomb and this was outside of our normal mission. So we found a bomb maker and he was in this building and they're like, well, we're going to surround it. <clears throat> we're going to surround the building. And then we're going to go floor to floor to floor to floor, uh, floor to floor to find these clowns. And some, they actually have high rides. They're now dirt huts and stuff. Like some people think at least 20 story height um, buildings and you go building to building or house to house or apartment to apartment to apartment. I'll eventually find the words and you clear them. Well, we're walking down this alley and the alley's really narrow, man. Like, 10, 10 feet, 20 feet, I'm sorry, 10 to 12 feet. And they have these deep inlays where the doors are. So I'm walking and we're at 20 foot intervals so that, you know, one grenade couldn't kill three soldiers kind of thing. And I'm, I'm walking, they have these like oil, oil trash cans, like an oil can um, that you would fill up your can, your car with. Not like the little plastic ones we have in America here, but like, look, they look like little steel trash cans. Um, mm-hmm if you can envision it, but they're actually oil drums and they cut off the lid to repurpose it. So I'm walking and it's right in front of me and it just, it seemingly explodes. Like, like shit goes everywhere. I was like, what the fuck is that? And then I could, I couldn't hear it. I didn't know what it was called at the time, but now it's called audio seclusion. When you get so scared, your, your senses will shut off certain senses to heighten other ones as a survival. Sometimes it's productive. Sometimes it's not. So I couldn't hear the audible gunfire. I could see the poofs of smoke and debris and shit around my feet. And I stood back, I stepped back and then it like hit me. Somebody's shooting at you from the roof. So I look up and I see a muzzle of an AK uh, over the side and just to pick the top of his head. So he would hung the AK over side, which just blindly spraying down at me. Guess what my first thought was? Why me? Like not, oh, shit, I got to kill this guy or, oh my God. It's like, I had my first thought and it's just, these are called distracted, distracting thoughts, by the way. Uh, so says my therapist. And so I'm looking at this barrel. I can't even hear it. I'm like, is he firing blanks? What is like, and it, it, it seemed like an eternity. I bet it was seconds. And, um, but my, when I acknowledged that he was trying to kill me, Brandon Lingle, I was like, this motherfucker, what <laughs> do to him like i felt butthurt emotionally offended <laughs> that he chose <laughs> i like how it's not i gotta return fire or like i gotta engage it's like what the fuck did i do yeah i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna try to keep it real with you guys because I, I don't i don't think me having a, a persona of being a tough guy is gonna help you so I, I, even if it's embarrassing i tend to tell the whole and so i'm taking all this in and finally something's like time to do something you dumb cocksucker so i'm like oh shit so i and it's weird so the army makes you train on all these things and i felt like somebody picked me up put me on railroad tracks like combat railroad tracks and just pushed me so i i didn't have a conscious thought about switching my weapon to safe aiming up and returning fire and then ducking into the inlay pulling my i have a grenade on my chest pulling the grenade off and just unwrapping it because you put fucking duct tape on it pulling the pin milking it which means letting the in uh, a spoon fly and then throwing it up there i have i never once thought of any one of these little things it's just we had trained so much for them that they, they just all happened it goes we then moved to the corner and beat feet out of there i never went to the top of the roof i i'm assuming we didn't hit him i didn't hear any moaning or screaming or anything like that so i'm assuming he as soon as i started shooting at him he just started running for the hills but um so we go to our mission 
and uh, I have some corner. I don't do anything too exciting on this mission. They all kick in doors and shit, and I'm like, I'm like watching uh, perimeter. And we get back, and I lay down, and then it hits me. Like, I, it just all came to me. Like, what if one of those were to like? It didn't even occur to me at the time, but like later on, I'm like laying there, and it's finally quiet. And that could have been it, man. I could have been fucking it. I could have been the end of my story. It's a weird thought, man, because combat's not fair, dude. Life's not fair. It's not a movie. It's there's no fucking happy ending. Sometimes, sometimes you just get shot in the fucking face. That next patrol after that was that even more nerve wracking for you? Were you still living in that anxiety fear just constantly? It it got to be this. It got to be this uh, facade I put on, and I kind of do it now. So we had ha- my little team. We had a little preparation ritual, and uh, so you, uh, one when you're about to go on mission, the shitters are full. Like everybody's got to go poop at the same time. They're called combat poops. If you if anybody knows combat, they'll know what I mean. Like anytime you're about to go on a mission, all of a sudden everybody's got to go poop, and it's a fear thing. So you kind of had this ritual, and I think the ritual formed habits, and then with your team coercion, you kind of just did it. So you do your combat poop. Yeah, lay out all your shit. You do your ammo count. You check your buddy. Your buddy checks you. And then we would listen to 50 Cent's Many Men, if you know that song. I don't even know why or how. Um, I just, it was one of, it was like our ritual, man. So we get, and it wasn't even that like exciting, but I still listen to it once in a while. It kind of brings me back. So we'll be, we finally got Bradley's. We finally got armored up on vehicles and we'd be in there and me and my boys would be listening to this. And it was just like pre-game ritual. I'm sure the NBA and other people do the same thing, man. I like, so you get in this little mode, you're like, okay, let's go. And you're just, you just go to see what the fucking day brings you. And you go out there and you try not, you try to do your best with what you have. And um, you survive one day, you survive the next day. And then it, it becomes a pattern, a weird pattern. At some point we had a car bomb go off near our front gate and, uh, uh, it was pretty bad. Uh, I can't remember, like 30, 30 dead. No no Americans. Um, they blew themselves up and then they killed bystanders. And I'm out there. And I, this was early on, actually. So I'm kind of not very, not very good here. But, and I'm cleaning up body parts. And, you know, I'm like disgusted about it. And six months later, or six, seven months later, something similar happens where we have a car bomb go off. And I got to tell you about car bomb real quick. When a car bomb goes off, man, it feels like the end of the world. Like I was one block over when a car bomb went off. And uh, which seems really far and it, for safety distances, it's it, like, I'm, I'm okay. Minus falling debris, but it goes off at night and the whole, first you don't hear it. Just the whole sky lights up like a nuke. Like, it, it, I mean, I'm being a little bit, I'm using a little exaggerative here, but it, the whole sky lights up. Yeah. I can, uh, I can picture the way yeah. you're describing. Yeah. The whole sky lights up and then you could just, just this thunderous, boom you can just and it's just a shockwave you can literally if, if you're looking in the right direction see the dust come up and then the shockwave hits you in the chest and then there's quiet for 30 seconds or so and then screaming so not everybody dies so there's just this blood curdling scream of the dying and the hot smell of blood it smells like pennies in the air and the explosive has a smell to me, it smells kind of like a sweet pepper, the composition B, or depending on what they use, there's this peppery smell in the air that mixed with the dust, dirt, smoke, burning flesh, and hot blood on the concrete. It's just an overwhelming sense of, of everything, you know. 
and then the, the screaming dies down from the dead and dying and um you're trying to render first aid while also being safe and so it happens again but this is like seven months later right and uh i can remember the strangest the strangest thing to me wasn't the death and the mayhem it was that i no longer felt anything so i didn't feel sad i didn't feel hot i didn't feel hungry and i'm moving i'm moving this dead individual and uh pieces of them and i'm like thinking to myself i feel nothing and that was the scariest that was the scariest of it all to be honest with you is that when I've acknowledged that I could no longer, I, I didn't feel, and I did feel like I love my wife and I miss, I love my boys and I, I could feel empathy still, but it had become death, mayhem and, and destruction had become so normal <clears throat> that they, it was like moving furniture, man. And it like, that was the strangest fucking part. The moment you feel nothing. And I kind of, I felt like I lost a little bit of myself in this time. I came back to my little barracks and like this, it was fucking with me, dude. Like these are people, you know, yeah, they they look different than you. They dress and they, but they're human beings. And I didn't hate them. I never hated the Iraqis people. It, I don't know what it was to be honest with you at the time, but I'm in my, I'm in my little barracks where I have, we have a bunk bed and I'm sharing it with my buddy Dan and I'm on top and I'm staring at the ceiling and I'm looking at all these pictures of me on the wall. And it's like me and my wife and, the fucking cats we had at the time or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at him. I'm like, I mean, I was like looking at myself and I was on those pictures and I, could, I couldn't stand to look at me happy anymore. So I had, I took my knife and I cut, I cut myself out of all my pictures. This sounds really fucked up, but, <laughs> and maybe it is, but I took, I couldn't stand to see myself in the pictures. And we had like one bathroom with a, a mirror in it that was in our, our little fob. And then we had like these trailer showers and I started noticing a, a shift and my boys, my friends, I started seeing, you know, less pictures of them, more of their family, less of the jovial chatting. I mean, there was still dark humor and they were still talking, but a shift had occurred. It was so subtle at first, I didn't realize it until after the, the, the second car bomb. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you heard something that inspired you and that you continue to tune in. Feel free to reach out to me on social media or by email. Also, if you're in a position to donate, I have a Patreon account set up to support this podcast and the community behind it. Whatever you're going through and whatever your situation is, stay in the fight.